Cindy Nobles is editor of a food series at LSU Press. What goes into being a food book and recipe editor? We learn all about it. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Cynthia Nobles, writer and author, editor, editor of the Southern Table series at LSU Press in Louisiana, and she is columnist for Louisiana Farm and Ranch Magazine. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you, Liz. Good to be here. So I also specifically want to say that Cindy was the editor of my book. I mean, there were other editors too, but she was the editor of my book, Nana's Creole Italian Table, which has just come out, which is part of her series. And I'm very excited to have been part of that series now that the book is finally available. And we were starting to talk before we began recording about the difficulty of trying to actually capture the cooking process in a recipe. We've become so standardized in the way we present a recipe. And sometimes I think that the way we present the recipe makes people feel that if they don't have something, they can't make it. You know, I actually um, had a meal with someone who was using a recipe from a book and we were there in the kitchen cooking and it turned out that you needed to have cracker crumbs and she got to the box of crackers and realized that she didn't have any crackers in the ba- in the box. It was empty. Somehow it had gotten put away, but it wasn't available. And it was actually a dish that used some very expensive ag- ingredients. And she was going to throw all the food away because she didn't have the cracker crumbs. And oh I said, well, why don't we use breadcrumbs or panko or something like that instead, which is what we ultimately did. But she constantly apologized because the food wasn't the way the recipe said, and maybe this was substandard or whatever. And I thought, my, you know, she was really wedded to the idea that you had to follow the recipe to a T. And of course, I always think of recipes as suggestions. <laughs> well, they are. And that's how new recipes are invented. When you don't have something and you throw something in or you make a mistake, lots of good recipes were um, invented that way. But you mentioned in your book a lot of times if you don't have this ingredient, throw something else in or just throw in any vegetable you have on hand. That's I kind of learned that from you, that that's a lot of what Italian cooking is. It's not very um specific it, it, it's it's you know whatever because they they were a culture they were impoverished when they first came here and lots of times they didn't have all the best ingredients in, on hand i like the cajuns i'm over here in cajun country and um 
it's a lot of just what's there. You have to kind of make do. And to me, those are always the best foods. If, if you have the experience, if right. you have you have to have the confidence in yourself to use those um, ingredients that aren't listed in a recipe. And I also think that it makes you closer to your ingredients in some ways because you are aware that uh, the ingredients are, uh, are, are not, they're not made by um, a factory. They're not made by a, uh, a machine or a special formula. So if it rained a lot, your tomatoes might be more watery, you know, when you're picking them out of your garden uh -huh. or somebody's garden down the way. And so there are all kinds of things that might make you say, if you're making a tomato sauce, have to cook it a little longer to get rid of that extra water or whatever. And so if you have something that's too precise, you aren't going to be able to make the food as good as it could be. Because if it says cook for 15 minutes, but because the, the tomatoes are so watery, you really have to cook for 18 minutes or something. It's an experience, obviously, that makes a difference. But if you are su such a, um, a stickler for following the recipe precisely, you don't even take into account the variations of your burners and uh, you know, all, of, all of those things. Right. Yeah. You've got to know your stove and you've got to know your experience level. Um, I was baking your cake yesterday, Liz, your lemon pecan cornmeal cake from your new cookbook. And it's absolutely delicious. But I have a new oven. And the first time I baked that cake, which was at my old oven at my mom's house, I had to bake it five minutes longer than I did yesterday. And oh. it just... <laughs> <laughs> that's a example of what we're talking about right now right not following the recipe exactly but uh, yeah i i agree with you some people are very scared but that it's that's pretty much a total experience thing i find i think the more and more you cook the more you're going to want to experiment you want to go outside the box from this little recipe that you have in a cookbook and see if you can improve on things and I remember years ago, I was like that too. If I didn't have the, the breadcrumbs, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't make the recipe instead of thinking, yeah, no, I could crush some crackers and put that on there, but I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> and so was it just confidence gained by cooking over and over again or cooking with someone else? What was it that brought you to that? I would say it was confidence. You know, after a while, you, re you realize that recipes are not set in stone and that whoever invented this recipe, they were just experimenting too. Now, the only um, thing I find is with baking, you do pretty much have to follow a recipe. There's not many times you can substitute one ingredient for another, unless you really, really are experienced um, with baking. But most good recipes you have to follow exactly. Well, I think the science of baking is much more precise than cooking in general. And so I, I agree with you that you really have to be a good measurer when you're baking. And I think that's why people feel that weighing is better than measuring in cups because it is more precise than measuring in a cup or a quarter cup or whatever. So I, I think... Um, 
I agree with you about baking, which is, of course, why I don't bake very much. <laughs> I like baking because if I get a good recipe, I know it's going to turn out right every time. You it's know, I, reactions. I don't have a, a I don't have a big sweet tooth. And so I if I bake something, I might eat it, you know, when it's first baked and then it the rest of it just dies. And mm -hmm. so. Um, so that's another reason why I don't do it very much because it's very hard to bake in small quantities. You know, you're not going to make one muffin um, or something, you know. That's, yeah. I bake a lot because I go to a lot of family and social events and I always like to bring along something. Oh, yeah. That's a, a nice thing to be able to bring with you. Um, so... When you are evaluating, like, especially for your series, so what else is in the series besides my book? We have a wonderful soul food cookbook by a lady up in Tennessee. Um, we have, oops, my pen's falling apart. Let's see, I have another really good one. It's um, a, a German Coast Recipes. That is fantastic. And I learned a lot about that people from that part of the country, they were all immigrants too, just like the Italians came through to New Orleans and they were kind of pushed aside and they created their own um, way of cooking. We also have a wonderful book on seeds, uh, saving seeds, that's from the guy up in Blueberry, John Coikendall from Blackberry Farm in Tennessee. That's mm -hmm. a fantastic book. He's saving seeds, trying to save all of our heirloom seeds, our heritage he's, seeds. He's such an, a great artist too. So his, uh, his illustrations are just fantastic. They are. And um, there's lots of illustrations in that book. But you see, we're picking up a lot of different, I would say maybe esoteric um, ways of cooking. These are not really mainstream things. These are things that we're trying to preserve. There's, there's a lot of history in this in this um, series of cookbooks, just like as in uh, yours, your Nana's Creole Italian Table Cookbook. I um, I'm really excited about yours because when we were getting it together, I was trying to do research on what was out there, mm -hmm. and because there's really not that much. There's a few church cookbooks, but they are all pretty much strictly recipes. And nobody really sat down and wrote the history like you did. And um, I'm, I'm glad just to have that for the historic record. Well, it was, it was really interesting to me to do. Um, and part of what was interesting, besides just the history of how the Sicilians came to Louisiana and New Orleans in particular, but it was interesting to me to just watch the dilution um, and I'm sure that it happens to all immigrant groups, especially large immigrant groups. I mean, this was not like a group of 20 immigrants. This was a group of tens of thousands of immigrants. And um, I was fortunate enough to be in at the sort of part where I could still go and see all these people who literally came from Sicily and um, spoke Sicilian with each other and sang folk songs and did all that sort of thing. And then see my mother who, although her first language was Sicilian, 
but you know, she was an American, she grew up in New Orleans, she absorbed the New Orleans culture, and then she married an American. And so it may, meant that English was the language of our house. And then there was me. And then of course my brother came five years later. And so we would go to parties and you would see all of these people that would speak to you in Sicilian. And there was lots and lots of, you know, kind of old, what was probably the culture of Sicily when they left. So they weren't even the modern Sicily of their time. They were still proponents of some older Sicily. And then uh -huh. every, every generation um, that came along had less and less contact with that because those people died off. And then you had people like my mother for whom speaking Sicilian became just a memory. And then you had me who spoke no Sicilian, a, a word here or two, you know, that the way you teach babies words. And, and then my children and then my grandchildren have virtually no connection. And just to see that, um, that way that you change uh, as you become part of the new place that you are. The other thing that I think is really interesting is in talking to other people, asking them questions about how they changed dishes or whatever, because we were in New Orleans and what their parents did and all of that. It was interesting to see how you saw that everybody had done that. And it wasn't, it wasn't just me. And for those of us who had actually had contact with the Sicilians and how people thought about what it was to be Sicilian, because I've been to Sicily, talked to people in Sicily, and it has nothing to do with what we think of as Sicilian in New Orleans. It's so different because they went forward and changed and did the way people do. But here it got frozen in time because it didn't change. It was like, this is the way it was in 1896 or 1905 or whatever. And that's the way we still think of it. And I just think that's hysterical um, that we, we think of that as Sicilian and the Sicilians don't think of it as Sicilian. That's right. I wonder what the Sicilians think about St. Joseph altars. That's something that's really gaining in popularity in South Louisiana. That's an old Sicilian tradition, as you well know. And uh, Sandra Juno, she, she did a book for my series, too, on St. Joseph altars. And um, she's helping to spread it, and she's helping to preserve the old recipes. And it is just now spreading here to Cajun country. And although I'm not too sure that people are trying to make the old Sicilian recipes here. I went to one a few weeks ago and there was lots of, lots of Cajun dishes, but they are getting a little bit more and more in tune with, with the roots of the practice. But do they do that in Sicily? Do you know, do they still have St. Joseph's I mean, I, I think that they still have St. Joseph's altars, but I don't think that it is as unifying a thing there as it is here in New Orleans and in Louisiana, where everybody of some kind of Italian descent comes together. Also, I think it has become much more secular here in Louisiana, as all things do. Right. So yeah. then, then what you have is 
all of the changes that come with other people who don't have Sicilian roots becoming involved in the St. Joseph's altar. And so it changes. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a natural thing. And I think if you don't allow it to change, it dies. So you have to have a change if you want it to continue on as a cultural practice. When once I went to one of the St. Joseph's altars at, at Rouse's grocery store, uh-huh. And um, it was being blessed by the archbishop. And so they had asked me before he blessed the altar to talk about why their altar was okay, even though nobody Sicilian, nobody even Catholic had put it together. And so you know, they had observed altars over the years because they were all from New Orleans. And so they knew that you had to have a statue of St. Joseph, but they didn't really know all the rules or anything because they hadn't studied it. They had just seen it. So they took away from it what meant something to them. So then they recreated a St. Joseph's altar, which nobody who's into St. Joseph's altars would have thought was a true St. Joseph's altar, but it didn't matter because it was still a St. Joseph's altar. And so I was trying to explain about this, this practice of something becoming secularized as more and more people become involved in it. So you don't have people making 10,000 cookies for the altar with a prayer that goes with every cookie and all of that kind of stuff where there's a meditation involved and, and it's actually a form of worship to create the cookies for the altar. You had people buying cookies for the altar and putting them on because they knew that those cookies belonged on the altar, you know, which is totally missing the point of the altar but it was what they took away, which was totally fine. So I was explaining all of that. And then the archbishop came and who he listened to what I had to say. And then he asked me to come with him for the rest of the day to the other altars where he was going, because he was going to one in a bar, he was going to one in a hotel, and he was <laughs> all these altars. And he said, you know, people need to hear this this story of what what is happening, because in his mind, the idea that it was bringing people to St. Joseph, whether it was or not, I'm not sure, but it was bringing people to St. Joseph's, or at least an awareness of St. Joseph and, you know, taking a moment to think. And most of the altars then were given to the poor, which was really the purpose of the altars. And so it was keeping that, that old fashioned purpose. And, and so I went around with him and gave that talk over and over again as he blessed the altars in all these different places. And I truly think that that is part of what keeps it alive today. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, you mentioned in your book how your children really don't have much interest in St. Joseph also, but is that an age thing? You think they might get interested as they get older? And what about all the wonderful Sicilian cooking as a whole? Is our families of Sicilian heritage getting away from that? I, I would hate to see all, you know, I have friends my age who cook the big pots of spaghetti on Sunday with the roast and all that and the eggs and all that, but their children have no interest in it either. And I'm just worried that that tradition is gonna die. Well, I I definitely think that it is 
being influenced by all sorts of other things. My children um, are not married to people who are Sicilian. And so one of them lives in New York. So he's not seeing the altars every year. And the other one is about to move to Madison, Wisconsin. So he's not really going to be doing it either. So I, I just don't see how it's possible to keep all of those traditions alive. There was a man um, who came to visit me. Um, he came to New Orleans and he was doing research. He was Italian. He's an Italian food writer. And um, he uh, was looking for foods that are still eaten in America, like old fashioned foods that are still eaten in America that are no longer uh, eaten by people of Italian descent, no longer eaten in Italy because they're considered not healthy. You know, all the things that we think about, oh, that's not a healthy thing. We shouldn't eat that anymore. Or we should change it and lighten it or do whatever we're gonna do. Well, of course that's going on in Italy too. So the food there is changing. And he said, he found people making, you know, spleen sandwiches and all kinds of things in America. Nobody does that in Italy anymore. And he said, um, it's just, it was amazing to him to see how these things were preserved as a part of heritage. Whereas in Italy, the heritage is taken for granted. And so you can make things change. And so he came and tasted it and still saw how it had been changed to make it more American. And by that, I mean that the food was, the things were more accessible. So you had to make certain substitutions and whatever, but the, the idea of the food was still there. He said he just found it amazing. And here he came to New Orleans and we took him to some Italian restaurants. All and, right. <laughs> um, and he kept saying, this isn't Italian food. And I said, nobody said it was, you know. <laughs> but it was, uh, it, it's a really, it's interesting to talk to people in Italy about it because it's, it's so, so very different. It's American food now. It totally is American food. Mm -hmm. And I just hope, I just hope that the next generations have some interest in it and keep it going because I find it kind of time consuming, you know, to make these wonderful sauces that the Sicilians make. And uh, it seems young people now just don't want to be bothered. They want something that's quick and easy. Well, and also I think one thing that could be a saving grace is that if there's this big clean food movement where you're not gonna buy something that has preservatives in it or anything like that, that there still may be people who make this food and you can do takeout and whatever and not maybe make it yourself, but somebody's out there making it. I mean, during the pandemic, I started making my own mayonnaise. I was making everything because partially I had time to do it, but I was making almond milk on a regular basis. I mean, my grandmother used to make almond milk on a regular basis, but um, I wasn't making almond milk. But when you look at like the kind of almond milk that you might buy at the grocery store and you look at the ingredient list, this is not, you know, clean food. Um, no. It's no, got it's kind of scary when you actually read labels. I agree. 
But there's an opportunity in there, Liz. Somebody can start doing that. (laughs) But I I think you're right. I think that people's priorities in terms of how much time they want to spend cooking and then the cleanup and all of that that it requires, um, it it takes a long time. And, um, and so you might, you know, only do it once a week or something like that. And, uh, and people don't want to like have every Sunday at grandma's house anymore, you know, and we're much more mobile and we don't live as close together. All of those things, I think, make a big difference. I think so too. But I kind of looked at this book as a project to preserve the recipes and and in some ways show how New Orleans foods have been changed or influenced by the Italians. And um, so I, to me, it was uh, it was more like this is this is a document to preserve like an archive of things um, as opposed to necessarily something everybody's going to go out and make. I mean, I think that there are recipes in there that anybody could make, but I don't know that everybody's going to decide to go make vinegar just because I describe how to do it in the book. I don't know. You have me interested in making vinegar now. I think a lot of Sicilian families are going to enjoy this book. A lot of, um, you know, older people are going to look and say, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of making this, you know, like vinegar. And since I was a child, and uh, there's a lot of recipes like that that I think are going to fascinate people. And I also think you did a very, very good job of presenting your family's personal history and melding it with the history of Sicilians and the history of Sicilians in New Orleans. At, at the beginning, I was a little afraid that it was just going to be something kind of dry and, you know, oh, this is Liz's family history, but it's not. You did such a good, good job of mixing everything together, making it, um, it's, it's going to be interesting, I think, to anyone, anyone who's interested in Sicilian food or food in general. It's just such a unique slice of New Orleans. And uh, this book, a book like this was long overdue and I commend you for doing it. Well, thank you. I wanted to thank you for um, letting me put in things like rosemary water for using it on things you iron because I thought this is actually I mean not that it takes up that much room you know in the book it's just one recipe but it was the sort of thing that I felt really was a reflection of the way the Sicilians thought and the way they used everything um, to um, you know in made actually blowing your nose different because you you had a handkerchief that had been sprayed with rosemary (laughs) oh no I love that 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 just adds so much more interest to a book and you know cookbooks don't have to be a bunch of dry recipes um I like what you did yours is pretty much what half recipes and half stories about Sicilians in New Orleans a very good balance I think so. I think it's about about half and half. And you really pushed me to make sure that I had 100 recipes, which uh, um, made me, you know, include things like liqueurs and other things that I might not have put in. But all of that really reflected the way they they operated. I mean, there was nothing that they didn't actually feel that they had to make themselves because they were so frugal 
number one. They never wasted anything, but they certainly aren't the only frugal people. I think the Cajuns and the Creoles are very frugal just by nature, which meant that they all got along because of that. But um, the, other, the other part of it was where they were from, that was really what you had to do because it wasn't being manufactured the way it is today, where you can just buy all these liqueurs and other kinds of things. It, they just weren't available. So you had to make them. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to learn too is how much um, Sicilians use lemons. You have lemons in so, so many recipes. I didn't realize how important they were, but uh, they are. And I've been using a lot more lemon in my food too since I, since I edited your cookbook. And it just adds a splash of brightness to everything. They're healthy for you too. Absolutely. I mean, Oh, if you didn't have a lemon, you used an orange, you know, whatever you could use, um, it was always uh, an important thing. And if you go to Sicily, you know, we have oak trees and other kinds of trees here in, in New Orleans lining the streets. They have lemon trees. I mean, they're just everywhere and there are lemons all over the place and you can just go and pick them up and then you have a lemon. Um, you know how much a, a sort of grocery litter there is after a um, St. Patrick's Day parade where you've got their lemons and potatoes and um, uh, garlic and uh, cabbages and onions, all, carrots all over the place. That's what it's like with lemons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of surprised they didn't, uh, the Sicilians who moved here didn't grow more lemons than they did in their yards. Did your grandparents grow lemon trees? Yeah, they, they had a lemon tree, yeah. And um, and just one lemon tree was enough to, you know, take them. And and they had a freezer, and so they really did use the freezer. So if you had way too many lemons, you know, they would either freeze the lemon or squeeze it and freeze the juice. And so you had lemons for the whole year. And also, I think it was a little bit less cold in the winter than it is now and so the lemon trees keep making you know they don't they don't really have that they have a season but then they keep making blossoms all year and so you do continue to have sort of straggly lemons through the whole year at least you used to I don't think mm -hmm. it was and what about olive trees has anyone over here tried to grow an olive I wonder if our climate's too cold so I think it's too wet I don't think it's too cold. I think it's too wet. Now they've they've created some hybrids today that allow you to grow. These are hybrids that are more wet tolerant. But you know you you're gonna grow uh, olives in Texas. You can grow olives in Georgia, and so there are olive oil production areas in both of those states. But I don't think you'll ever see Southern Louisiana as a, an olive producing area, because it, you know, when my grandparents came, if you wanted an olive tree, you would have had to put it in a pot and they take so long before they start producing that, you know, you're never going to get anything out of a potted yeah. olive tree. So it was, it, it wasn't something that they could bring over. So they had to import olives, you know, mm -hmm. olive oil. Mm -hmm. Olives and anchovies. So you call oh, yeah. anchovies quite often in your recipes, and there's no such little critter around here. 
Well, and uh, to me, the anchovy is the same thing as any kind of umami, whether it's fish sauce or something that would be the equivalent, say, in Asian cooking or whatever. It's like you just saute that anchovy till it falls apart and nobody even knows it's there, but it just gives you that flavor that adds something and you know when it's not there, but it doesn't taste like fish. Right. You never put enough to make it fishy. No, people who don't like anchovies like it the way you do it. You um, make it melt, melt into your things. I made some caponata the other day and I put a few anchovies in there and people who swear they'd never eat an anchovy loved it. And I didn't tell them it was in there. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've... And it is really strong if you just eat the whole anchovy. So I understand why people are a little bit reluctant because if they don't like that strong fish flavor, it can be jolting. But if you just kind of diffuse it through everything, it's just delightful. Yeah. It is, it is. So that's what a, uh, Sicilian cooking is. It's, it's layering of flavors. And that's how a lot of your recipes are. Um, you season and then you saute and you go on and on and on. It's just all so wonderful. So the only other thing I want to say um, about Sicilian food is that I love the use of bread everywhere so that you never are throwing away bread. And that was such a big deal in my grandmother's house. There was always, oh, there's, there's really, really stale bread and there's kind of stale bread. And there's, you know, there was always some degree of staleness and you use different kinds of bread for different things. And I, I just thought that was great. And she would just tell you, oh, well, use the one over there because that's the right degree of staleness for whatever it was you know, you're mm -hmm. using for it at that time. And, I, you know, it's really great because we are a really throwaway culture now, so. We are, unfortunately, we are. Although I don't throw away stale bread. I make uh, breadcrumbs. I've been doing that for years. But it looks like your grandmother had been doing it forever with her wonderful little uh, grater box. That oh, yeah, the grater box was just <laughs> Absolutely. Do you still have that box? I do not have the box. My my mother threw it away, so oh. I don't have it. Yeah, yeah. I would love to have it, but I don't have it. Uh, my mother just thought this is crazy. She would throw her bread in a food processor, mm. and so which is a much much more efficient way to do it. But I would have liked to have the box, you know. But that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. I at least remember it. So. <laughs> What are you working on in the series right now? Anything you can talk about? Um, I am working on a children's book. I'm working with an author on a children's book. So that's fun. We don't have any yet like that. And it's um, historical. It brings characters from the past and uh, we give little simple recipes. And it's going to have some pretty pictures and stuff. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I like to get people... Learning how to cook and getting interested in cooking young. I have lots and lots of young people around here, great nieces and uh, grandchildren and stuff. And I'm, I'm always trying to get them to cook. So uh, hopefully this cookbook will spark a little interest. Oh, that sounds, that sounds really great. 
Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Cindy. It's been fun talking to you and um, I'll be looking for that new cookbook. That sounds great. This was fun, Liz. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.